if something you do every day could make a difference? What if the steps you took changed one life or two? Join us for our upcoming Walk for Life. Gather with others in our community who love life and want to support the moms, dads, and babies served through our center. When you walk, run, or stroll for life, you will impact lives in our city. When you walk, you walk for them. They helped me when I found out I was pregnant. I was so afraid and had no place to turn. Because of them, I have my baby. When you walk, you walk for us. I was so scared to be a dad. I thought abortion was our only option. I'm so thankful they were here for me, for us. I thought choices I made in my past were unforgivable. They pointed me towards hope and healing. You helped my mom choose life for me. When you walk, you walk for me. Every dollar you raise makes a difference. Will you please join us? something you do every day could make a difference? What if the steps you took changed one life or two? Join us for our upcoming Walk for Life. Gather with others in our community who love life and want to support the moms, dads, and babies served through our center. When you walk, run, or stroll for life, you will impact lives in our city. When you walk, you walk for them. They helped me when I found out I was pregnant. I was so afraid and had no place to turn. Because of them, I have my baby. When you walk, you walk for us. I was so scared to be a dad. I thought abortion was our only option. I'm so thankful they were here for me, for us. I thought choices I made in my past were unforgivable. They pointed me towards hope and healing. You helped my mom choose life for me. When you walk, you walk for me. Every dollar you raise makes a difference. Will you please join us?
What if something you do every day could make a difference? Well, good morning. Wow. Good morning. All right. It is the Lord's day. You are the Lord's people. Purchased by Christ and set apart for his glory. And to this day, he has called you to gather in this space and to lift up your voices in worship to this great and glorious God. He has, he has called you to this day to come with his people and to 
with one voice lift up our hearts in praise and adoration to our God. So let us do so, uh, trust by the power of the Spirit, and let us do so in a manner that would be pleasing to our Lord on this day. Amen. A few announcements. If you'll grab your bulletins, we are so glad you are here today. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we especially greet you and thank you for being here today. Uh, inside your bulletin, I think it's on the back page this morning, uh, you will find a little barcode that if you would scan uh, with your little smartphone, you can put some information in that that would allow us to pray for you and to reach out to you if possible. Uh, again, we are glad that you are here today and uh, trust that the Lord will use this day to uh, strengthen your faith in Christ, call you to faith in Christ. Uh, we, are, again, are glad you are here. A few announcements just in the middle portion of your bulletin I want to take note of this morning as we begin our gathering. Our Easter schedule is slightly different this year. Uh, not much, but slightly. We have a Good Friday service happening on April the 15th. Uh, that'll take place at 7 p.m. That's always a very special gathering for us. We would encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, we will be observing the Lord's table on that particular evening as we set our attention fully up on the sufferings of our Savior on that particular uh, significant day for our church family. We'll have a sunrise breakfast uh, Easter Sunday. That will begin at 7.30 a.m. Uh, we will have a gathering that will take place here along with a breakfast to follow. That's always a special time for us. Uh, the food's always good, one, uh, and we'll get information out about that food soon. Uh, but it's always a, a very special time for us here early on Easter Sunday to kind of set our mind and our heart right as we walk into that holy day of worship for our church family. That service will begin at 10 a.m. We're calling it a family Easter service. In other words, everyone's going to be in the auditorium, okay? Uh, so it, it may be a little uh, rambunctious in here that particular day, maybe some a cry here or there, but we want to spend that particular service together as a whole, so uh, please take note of that. A few other announcements down through uh, your list. Uh, training hour classes will resume uh, next Sunday morning, so make sure you look down at the very bottom of your bulletin, the middle page. You'll see the classes that are listed. If you haven't started them, jump in now. Uh, you'll find it helpful uh, as they are uh, probably less than halfway through the spring semester. Okay, I'm not going to note anything else. You guys and gals can read and uh, make sure you're focused on these things, aware of what's going on in and around Randolph Street. Every week, we take a moment uh, to confess our sins before the Lord. This is a holy moment for our church family. We come into the presence of our God together to lift up our voices, to sing, to pray together, to read the scriptures, to submit our hearts to the preaching of the word. And we want to do so uh, with clean hearts, uh, pure hearts, walking into the presence of our God together. So each week we take a moment uh, just to settle our hearts, settle our souls, and ask the Lord to strengthen and build into us more and more the image of Christ. Let's take a moment, just quiet your hearts before the Lord, uh, pray, asking God to do a good work in your hearts this morning.
Amen. Please stand if you would. And as you stand, let us hear Psalm 24 call us as the people of God to worship this morning. This is the word of the Lord for us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen.
Each week we take a period of time to confess our faith before the Lord, the various aspects and elements of our faith. It is always critical that we understand what we believe and that we rest entirely upon it. This morning we are looking at question 21, very applicable to our church family. Into what condition did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into a condition of sin and misery. What is the sinfulness of that condition into which all mankind has fallen? The sinfulness of the condition into which all mankind fell is the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of our old nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which come from this nature. Let's pray. Our Father, as we ponder these questions that are set forth from your word and answered from your word, we readily recognize that we are sinful people. Even though redeemed, we still struggle with sins, those sins that can so easily beset us. Sins of the heart, sins in our behavior, sins in our laziness at times. And so, Father, as we think upon those, we recognize that there is such hope in the gospel. We are so eternally grateful, O oh God, that you have addressed our sin in the person of Christ, that you give us victory over sin, that you give us through the gospel, through our union with Christ, that we have died with Christ, that we have been raised together with Christ, and that which he accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection is ours. And Lord, that our sins have been forgiven. The strength of sin has been destroyed. The evil one who uses that has been rendered inoperative in many ways. And so, God, we rejoice in the gospel this morning. Lord, as we sang just a moment ago, it so struck me how sometimes it would appear in our culture and in our world that sin is winning. But how, how important it is that we recognize that you as our God do surround us in your mercy and by your mercy. Lord, help us to rest in you. Help us to rest in your strength. Help us to rest in the gospel, the work of Christ accomplished on our behalf. Lord, help us to do battle, to stand in that evil day. Help us to put on the whole armor of God that we might do battle against sin, against Satan. And Lord, we are grateful that our victory is won through Christ. To him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Please stand.
of sins I have not done, no 
Let us lend our attention as God speaks through his word. A reading from the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own account, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. A reading from the book of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Please stand.
Well, if you would take your copy of Holy Scripture and open with me to Hebrews chapter 7 for the reading of the sermon text this morning. And while you are turning to Hebrews 7, let me remind you in the inner portion of your bulletin, every uh, for two weeks at a time, we are highlighting a particular gospel partner. Last Sunday was the first week we highlighted Keith and Kristen Miller, members of Randolph Street, who are now serving, serving in Western Africa in Ghana. Um, we would ask that you obviously keep them in your heart, in your mind, to pray for them, asking the Lord to do to produce much fruit through their work and uh, our partnership with them. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to begin reading at verse number 23. We're kind of mid-context. I'll come back to that in a moment. We're going to read through the end of this chapter. So let's hear together the word of God. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, he holds his priesthood permanently, speaking of Christ, because he continues. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, this is your word for this Lord's day for your people. And I would pray that you would bless your word now as we step into it, as we think through this important doctrine of Scripture in regard to the sinlessness of Christ. Lord, by your Spirit, let your word have a good and holy work in each of our hearts here this morning. Lord, call us to fresh moments of faith, repentance. Stir in us, Lord, obedience, commitment to holiness, sanctification. Lord, work those things in us as we hear your word this morning. Lord, I would pray for every person sitting in this room or joining us online today that if they have never come to saving faith in Christ, Lord, that you would use your word this morning by the power of your spirit to grant life, that they might turn from their sins and be saved. Lord, as we enter into our Easter celebrations in these next few weeks, Lord, I pray that we would think rightly about our Savior today that this truth would maybe renew right and helpful thoughts about Jesus and his life, especially as we think about his sufferings. So Lord, bless now your word 
to your people. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. my brother for serving us today if you'll have your bibles open to hebrews 7 notepads pens papers handy however you best think through the scriptures as they are being preached if you are a member of randolph street and you missed our members meeting that took place this morning at 9 15 um, our elders will be present after our gathering. If you have questions, you'd like to get an update, uh, Pastor Tim and myself, the rest of our elders will be floating around the auditorium, so please don't hesitate to grab us, uh, and we can provide you uh, an update to our meeting from this morning. Well, as normal, I don't know that there's anything normal around here most days, but uh, typically, the first Sunday of the month, which today is, we give ourselves to this Doctrine Matters series. We have been in this particular series for a number of months with a couple of uh, hiccups here and there. 
This particular year, 2022, we focused our first two Doctrine Matters ser sermons, January and February, on the doctrine of man. And specifically, we asked two questions in those particular sermons. What does it mean to be creating the image of God? We wanted to kind of see what that is and what that means and why that's important for us as we think about our lives, as we think about our culture. The second sermon in February dealt with um, our condition in Adam, namely total depravity. And I know that stirred a lot of thinking among our church family and typically does anytime you consider the result or the impact of Adam's disobedience on humanity and its implications. Today, we're going to move in light of Easter. That's just a few weeks away. We're going to move into the doctrine of Christ. Today, we're going to have a particular focus in the doctrine of Christ. This is, this is really a sermon that's kind of been brewing in my heart for a number of years. Um, the particular focus of the doctrine of Christ is on the sinlessness of Christ or the obedience of Christ. So, so we're going to hone in to a very particular aspect of Christ today and talk about his sinlessness. And as always in these Doctrine Matters ser sermons, now listen, let me, let me, before I get there, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, why, why is this important? I, I'm going to come to the end with three thoughts that, that you're going to feel I hope, if not for the first time, a renewed emphasis on how important it is that Jesus was sinless in his humanity. Everything hangs on this. And I'm not overstating that to get you to listen to everything else in my sermon. Everything hangs on this particular subject in regard to justification, in regard to our eternal life. But as with every Doctrine Matters sermons, uh, they are not designed to be exhaustive. And we did provide you donuts this morning, so I could preach a little bit longer, maybe. But I do recognize also all of your kids have been eating donuts. All right? Husbands are going to be asleep. Kids are going to be bouncing these next few moments. This sermon is not designed to be exhaustive, hopefully helpful and informative for you to pursue more on your own. Here's your outline. Let's get this out of the way because we're going to jump into this pretty thick. We're going to do a little intro work at the beginning, like we always do in the Doctrine Matters series. I'm going to give some definition. Um, I'm going to read you three really important texts, kind of general. Here's, this, is, this is what it is, definitional kind of work. We're going to go to Hebrews 7. That's why I had us turn to that text. We're going to go to Hebrews 7, and we're going to look at three really important strategically placed adjectives. This writer sticks in. That's, that's directly speaking to the subject we're looking at this particular morning. Lastly, I'm going to come to the significance of this doctrine for the church, and I'm going to look at three responses to that. All right, so three adjectives, three responses is more or less your outline this morning. So when we speak of the sinlessness of Christ, here is what we are speaking of. Christ, in his humanity, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, in his humanity, while living in a fallen world, Christ was perfectly obedient and sinless. Right, in, in his humanity, living in the context of a, of a fallen world, Christ, in his humanity, was perfect, perfectly obedient to the Father and sinless. And the scriptures are 
explicit on this particular subject. I mean, there is no room to disagree on this particular doctrine. Here's the three texts I'm going to shove up to the front real quick before we get to Hebrews 7. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the text of all texts, right? For our sake, he, speaking of the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. And then here it is. He wants, to, he wants to qualify this. Who knew no sin, right? The Father made the Son to be sin. We worked through that in a sermon three years ago. But he wants to, he wants to make sure you, the reader, understand Jesus had no sin. That's Paul. The writer of Hebrews, earlier in chapter 4, is going to affirm this same reality. He says, we preached this sermon about three years ago, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things. Okay, there it is. He's been tempted in all things. Now, lest you think he's given in to that temptation, the writer then says, yet without sin. So, so Paul, the Father, has made him to be sin for us. All right, let me clarify. He knew no sin. The writer of Hebrews now, he's been tempted. This is our high priest. He's been tempted in every possible way we've been tempted. But let me clarify, no sin, yet without sin. And then John. So we got Paul, we got the writer of Hebrews, we got John. We're going to litter in a variety more later. John says this, You know that he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to take away sins. So the work that he came to do was sin-oriented. That's what, that's what John is saying. He appeared in human flesh, back to my definition, he appeared in order to take away sins, and then John adds a qualifier, lest you think that that means he entered into participation of sin. John writes, in him there is no sin. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse number 5. So all three writers in building a case for Christ and his work on our behalf wants you, the reader, to understand in him there is no sin. Now, it's not speaking of just his deity. We're speaking of his humanity. Living in a fallen world, in him there is no sin. And that is life-giving to you. Trust me, we'll get there in a moment. So Christianity is always affirmed. This, this will remind you of some December sermons. Christianity is always affirmed that the eternal Son of God took upon himself humanity, body and soul. And he lived as a true human. He was, confessions will say it like this, he's truly human. In other words, he, he participated in the human condition, yet without sin, back to the writers. And he lived in the context of a fallen world. He, he didn't escape that. He didn't, get a, he didn't get a pass because he's the eternal son of God. He stepped into a fallen world, into the human condition, and he lived life as a true man. Now, now hear this. He lived life as a true man, trusting his father. 30 plus years. This isn't some superhero that was removed from the human condition. This is what Christianity has always embraced. The eternal son of God 
truly God, took up on himself human nature. He's truly man, and he stepped into our condition, and he lived in our world, in a fallen world, and he did so perfectly as a man, trusting his Father, step by step by step, for three-plus decades. In every way, Jesus obeyed the holy law of God in every possible way as a man. That was the introduction. Now let's go to Hebrews 7, three quick adjectives. Let me give you, hope your Bibles are open. You're going to look down and see them in just a moment. There's, there's really five statements being made. I'm going to pick on three of them. Let me give you a little run-up to Hebrews, this section of Hebrews. The, the writer in Hebrews 7 is building an argument about the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament priesthood. All right, we're jumping right in the middle of that argument. The, the Levitical priesthood, the high priesthood. It, it's a rather complicated argument. And, and if you remember, when we studied through the book of Hebrews, it's one of those parts of Hebrews, it kind of leaves you scratching your head when you first enter into the argument because it begins talking about this figure of the Old Testament who very briefly appeared onto the pages of Scripture. And as quickly as he appeared on the pages of Scripture, he was gone. And outside of a reference in the Psalms, Melchizedek now is brought to the forefront and Jesus is seen here as in the lineage, if you will, the, the, the priestly lineage, not of the Levites, which the high priest would be, but of this Melchizedekian priesthood, this mysterious and shadowy Old Testament figure. That, that he brings into the argument, which again, when, when you're studying through the book of Hebrews, it does cause you a moment of just kind of scratching, well, where's he going with this? By the time you're into chapter 7, you're recognizing why he's bringing this to the bear. As the writer builds this argument, I'll let you go back and read through that. As the writer builds this argument in chapter 7, he's going to contrast Jesus with the Levitical priest, the high priest. And his purpose is clear. If you let your eyes linger down to verse number 25, this is kind of the pinnacle of everything he's chasing in chapter 7. He wants the reader to understand that this priest, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All right, that, that's where everything has been driving in chapter 7. He's putting you in front of this particular priest, namely Jesus. And he's showing to you that this, this priest, he brings forth not a temporal appeasement of God. This priest and his work, he brings forth a complete and eternal salvation. He's, he's drawing out this, this distinction. He's, he's able to do this. His work is effectual. He can accomplish the end for which he is desired, and that is that he could, he could bring you into the presence of God, or to use the words of the Hebrew writer, he could save you to the uttermost. This priest can do that. Only this priest. As he develops this contrast, he's going to identify, among, among several, two serious problems with the Old Testament priesthood. One, he's going to say in verse 23, 
speaking about these Old Testament priests, they die. Problem. Verse 23. Therefore, they cease in their priestly ministry. Right? That's a problem. These priests who, who enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people of God, he's just identifying a clear problem in regard to the Old Testament priesthood, and namely, the priests, their ministry, their service to God is short-lived. They die, and so therefore their priestly ministry dies in verse 23. The second problem he identifies is verse 27. These Old Testament priests, they're sinners, Right, when they, they come into the presence of God to offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people, they must first offer up sacrifices for their own sins. So the problem here of the priesthood, of the Old Testament at least, it's short-lived, ineffectual, sinners. And both of these problems are bolstering a point that the author, if you look back at verse number 11 in chapter 7, is making clear. Perfection is not possible under the Levitical priesthood. Perfection is not possible under the Levitical priesthood. And here's the problem for you and for me in regard to that. Perfection is what is demanded of God. That's the problem. He's identifying the weaknesses of this. Perfection cannot be attained under this system. The problem that the, the, the hoovers over all of the scripture is this. God demands perfection. So the Old Testament priests and their inferiority is found in the fact that, and this is what Tom Schroner writes in his commentary, death was their master. They could do nothing to conquer this enemy of God on behalf of his people. And that does not surprise us because these priests, they were sinners. That's the backdrop now for what he's going to say about Jesus. The, the, the first problem, look at verse number 24. He, he, he resolves quickly. Priests die. Jesus, look at verse 24. He lives forever. He always lives. Right, in other words, death is not his master. I think, I think you could certainly read into this. He's conquered death. Resurrection is kind of lingering here under these words. He always lives. And I think that's the idea that's being brought. The, the priests, they die. The, their ministry ceases, but, but not Jesus. Right? He, he lives. He always lives. So he resolves the first problem. The Old Testament priests, they die. Jesus, he lives. He lives on. The second problem is resolved into three adjectives that I'm driving us to. He's holy. He's innocent. Verse 26. He's unstained. Separated from sinners. Exalted above the heavens. You see, the Old Testament priests, when they performed their duties before God... They always had a cloud of guilt and sin hanging over their heads. And back to what I said a moment ago in verse number 27, it's going to bear this out. They had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins, but not this priest. Here are the three adjectives. I'm just pulling those three, first three, because I think they specifically address the issue we're going after. First, he's holy. This is how the writer describes this priest speaking of Jesus. He's holy. 
He's morally pure. I, I think this word is going after this idea that in relation to his standing before the Father, Jesus is religiously and ceremonially clean in and of himself. Right? Unlike the Old Testament priest, he was fully consecrated to the Lord, clean and pure before God. And really, to this point, as we could say this, no priest has ever stood before God like this priest. He stands before God marked out as holy, standing in his own merit, in his own character. He is righteous. There is no impurity in him. There is no strain or stain of sin that is to be present or found within his character. This is the holy priest. This idea of the sinlessness of Jesus is found not only in direct statements of Scripture, but often in narratives or in maybe surprising places. Acts chapter 4, a sermon we just preached a few weeks ago. For truly in this city you were gathered together, this is Peter speaking about the religious leaders, against your holy servant, Jesus. They understood who he was, right? This is the one who is pure and clean before God. This is the holy servant. John would say this in 1 John chapter 2. My children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the what? The righteous. This is how they understood him to be. This man is pure and clean before God. He is righteous in all of his ways. Remember the demons in Luke chapter 4? When Jesus comes up on them and they say to him, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then they make this declarative statement, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And this writer grabs this adjective to help us understand something essential about Jesus. In his humanity, as our priest, he's holy before God. Look at the second adjective. He's guiltless or innocent, which means guiltless. In other words, there is no blame to be placed upon this man. He would be accused at times of evil by the religious leaders, but Jesus, in the truest form, was above reproach and without fault. So in the court of God's perfect, holy standard, this man, Jesus, stood innocent and guiltless. That, that's a statement. I, I, want to, I want to slow down a little bit through these adjectives to help us see what this writer is trying to communicate to us. When he stood before God, in the court of God's perfect and holy standard, Jesus stood there innocent, guiltless, fully and completely above reproach. Remember the centurion when Jesus was hanging on the cross? All that was taking place, remember what he said? Surely this man was what? Innocent. Look at the third adjective. It's unstained. He is unstained. In other words, he is pure and spotless. There is no blemish in him. Inside and outside, this man carried no impurities. He is unpolluted, untainted, uncontaminated by the sin and its effects upon this world. That's Jesus. 
Peter would say he's like a lamb without spot or blemish. Every aspect of his being was pure, spotless. He was untainted by the presence of sin in his heart and his mind. So that's how this writer in Hebrews chapter 7 captures Jesus. He grabs these three adjectives. The other two, I think, are referring, advancing the idea. But these three adjectives, he pulls together and he declares to us, the reader, listen, he is holy, he is innocent, and he is unstained. Let me make just a, a, a statement that I think you already know. Only those three adjectives, those three adjectives could only be used of Jesus, not us. Only Jesus could be spoken of with this kind of language. So let me take those three adjectives and move them into the life of Jesus. Just listen for a moment. In a period of 30 plus years, Jesus never did wrong. He never erred. He loved the Father with all of his heart, mind, and soul, and he loved his neighbor fully, completely. He obeyed the Mosaic law, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil aspects. He, he submitted himself fully to the law of God over his life. Now, let me press this in a little deeper now. He never had a thought enter his mind that was displeasing to the Lord. His mind never lingered toward distrust or idolatry. He never lusted or engaged in sinful, impure thoughts. He never coveted. He never yearned for something that was not given to him by the Father. He never spoke an impure word. He never lied or gossiped. He never fabricated a story to impress others. He was not a backbiter nor a slanderer. He was never given to a loose tongue or a harmful speech toward others. He was never impatient or short-tempered. Peter would say, quoting Isaiah, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He never carried out a deed that was dishonoring to the Father. In private or public, he was a man of good works. He never hid in the shadows to engage in wicked deeds. He never participated in any form of immoral actions. He did not steal. He did not cheat. He never deceived. Jesus refrained fully and completely from anything that dishonors the Father. He was tempted to rebel. We learned that in the Scriptures. But when temptation came, the Son of God steeled himself and with a resolve, grounded in the trust of his Father, always, always, always obeyed every time he obeyed. And this is not for this sermon. But it's good for us to stop and just hear this. Jesus was tempted more fully and more intensely than you and I will ever be tempted. He bore every temptation to its fullness. He never short-circuited the process by surrendering to the temptation. He never yielded. He bore the power of temptation to its fullest end every time. Let me press one more layer down. It's not that Jesus did, did, did not do 
right? Because a lot of what I just said is he didn't do this and he didn't do that and he didn't do that either. But it's more than that. It's not just that Jesus refrained from sin. Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father as a true man. John chapter 8, verse number 29, Jesus says this explicitly, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, speaking of the Father, which is why the Father, at the end of his baptism, would speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is a man who did everything to please the Father. That is the exhaustive teaching of Scripture. He refrained in the midst of temptation. He refrained from committing sin, sin, and he always obeyed. Three plus decades. Child, teenager, young adult, man, every time he obeyed. So, why is this important for us? I'm guessing I just preached the choir for 26 minutes, and you, you agree with everything I said, or maybe you're wrestling with something, but why is this important? I'm gonna give you three responses to that that I hope will be helpful to you, especially today as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. I could give you dozens of responses to this. I've just chosen three that were helpful to me this week. I pray they will serve our church family well. Number one, this understanding of the obedience of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, it, it, it gives us a right perspective, especially as we enter Easter season. It gives us a right perspective. It humbles us. It shapes gratitude in us because we understand that the one who is the delight of the Father, the one who did everything right in the eyes of the Father, is treated as the sinner for us. Peter would say this, Christ suffered once for sins, and then here it is, the righteous for the unrighteous. Back to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin, the one who knew no sin. And this is what I want to kind of land up on us as we think about the obedience of Christ or the, the sinlessness of Christ. Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus is treated as if he is the sinner. But he wasn't. He wasn't the sinner. He was the law-keeping son of God. He was righteous in every way, but in the gospel, and this is, this is where I think it creates gratitude or at least humility in our hearts, in the gospel, he was treated as if, as if he is the ultimate offender against the holy God, the one who was purely innocent, the one who never erred, the one who always obeyed, is treated as if he is the disobedient one in the gospel. To Peter's language, the righteous one steps into the place of the unrighteous ones. That's, that's the heart of the gospel message. And here's the kicker to all this. Christ is reckoned the sinner in our place. 
He's reckoned to be the sinner. And in that, he would bear the horrific penalty of sin. He would come under the curse of God. He would fall under the damning judgment of God. And he would experience the unleashing of the holy fury of God upon him. And we need to feel that reality to understand the depth of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This is the righteous one, the holy one, the one who always did what is right now, being treated as if he is the sinner. It's hard to be arrogant when we keep a proper perspective of the gospel. Because you're the unrighteous one in this story. You're the sinner. And there's nothing in you or me that deserves or merits God's kind favor and love. There is nothing. But Christ, well, he merited it through obedience. He had it already. But this is the righteous one. And now in the gospel, he receives the wrath and we receive life and forgiveness and righteousness. We sang a song a little while ago that we don't often do here. I could hear it in your hesitancy as we started the song. I'm going to reread the verses. This is why we sang it. No list of sins I have not done. It's like just a confession to the Lord. No list of virtues I pursue. I love this little line. No list of those I'm not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer. No lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. And here it is. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. And here it is. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful, and here it is, in Christ alone. This is what this truth should do to us. It should cultivate in our hearts and in our souls a deep appreciation for what Christ has done for us in the gospel and should render us before God with this kind of language. Nothing I have done. Listen, if you're in this room and you think you have done something to merit God's favor, could I have your attention for one brief moment? The only thing you have merited from God and you've done a good job of this, is his wrath. Same for me. But in Christ, in Christ, you have the Father's love. 
Number two, this, this idea of the sinlessness of Christ, it is on this ground, his absolute holy purity and perfect obedience, it's on that ground that Jesus could atone for man before this infinitely righteous God. So it was necessary that the sacrifice in our place be pure and guiltless and spotless in order that a sufficient atonement for our sins could be made. His sinlessness, what we looked at there, his sinlessness qualified him to be this priest. And his sinlessness meant he offered up to God a sacrifice that was acceptable on our behalf. So this idea of the sinlessness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, it breeds confidence in me that my sins have been truly forgiven. He's qualified to be our high priest. And the fact of his sinlessness and his obedience means that the the offering that he lifts up before God is sufficient for my sins. So therefore, out of that, I'm confident. Not in me, but in Christ. My sins are forgiven because a sinless sin bearer, a righteous substitute, a perfect and spotless lamb stood in my place. That's why I said it's everything to me that Christ lived a perfect life so that the sacrifice he offers up before God as a man in his humanity, the sacrifice he offers up to God is sufficient to atone for my sins. So I look at the righteousness of Christ and what I see there is confidence in the gospel. He was qualified to be my priest. Unlike the Old Testament priest, he was qualified because of his life and his death was sufficient because of his life. And there lies my confidence. You wrestling with assurance this morning? You're wrestling with, man, am I, are my sins forgiven? You look in the mirror, you're going to be drowned out with sorrow and guilt and the burden of this, your heart is going to be heaped up on you. Listen, don't look in the mirror to find your assurance. You look to Christ. You look to Christ. And when I see his life lived perfectly and fully before God, and I see him on that cross, I know that he is qualified. And the offering he offers to God is sufficient for me. And therein I rest. Lastly, through faith we are united to Christ as our representative. There's a storyline there I'd love to chase, but we don't have time. Through life, we are, through faith, we are united, united to Christ. And here's the glory of this truth. In that union, his righteousness is ours. His righteousness is reckoned to us. It is imputed to us. You see, we are not just forgiven of our sins. And that, that, that I don't want to belittle forgiveness because it's massive, it's huge, right? It's astounding. But we are not just forgiven of our sins. Because we are united to Christ, we are declared righteous in him. 
Why? Because of his righteousness. I mean, this is, this is the glory of the gospel for you, sinner, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then the, the last part of that verse I left off, so that in him, hear that? In him, united to Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Tom Schreiner writes this, when believers are united with Christ, they receive all of who Christ is, both in his life and his death, both in his obedience and in his suffering, both in his precepts he obeyed and in the penalty he endured. Therefore, believers are not just forgiven. They also receive God's righteousness in Christ. All of Christ is theirs, for they belong to him, and thus their righteousness is in him. The beginning of this sermon... I said one of, the, one of the problems that Hebrews 7 is identifying is the inability of the Old Testament priesthood to make the worshiper perfect before God. I don't remember what verse that was. Well, I followed it up by saying this. The problem of that is this. God demands perfection. He demands perfection. So what we learn in the gospel is this. It's not that our slate was wiped clean only. That's half of the fruit of Christ's work. Our record now, because of Christ and our union with Christ, is that of righteousness, perfect righteousness. It's one thing when you get a bath, right? You're dirty, when you clean all the dirt off, but it's a whole nother thing when you put on that fresh, clean clothing. Well, in Christ, we are cleansed from our sins, and in Christ, we are clothed with his perfect righteousness. And this is how the Father sees us. He sees us forgiven in Christ, and he sees us righteous in Christ. The fruit of his work, the obedient one, is not simply that you are a pardoned enemy. You are a righteous son or daughter of God. This is why this song speaks so clearly to our hearts. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. And what's that mean for you? Here it is, faultless, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And the author gets it right. All other ground, everything else that our hope could lodge in, sinking sand. Well, there we stand. The sinless, perfect obedience of Christ through faith is reckoned to you, sinner. And that is a good place to stand this morning. Let's pray together.
Well, Father, that this truth of the obedience and righteousness of Christ, may it press into our hearts this morning. I would pray first that there is nothing in us that we would hope in or think would merit your righteousness this day. Just together as a church, Father, would we all confess that now in our hearts? There's nothing in us. It's outside of us. Namely, it's in your son. As a pastor here at Randolph Street, Father, I pray that by your spirit, every person in this room right now can make that confession. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Lord Jesus, thank you for your perfect obedience to the Father. For thousands of reasons, we, we want to thank you this morning. For how you endured temptation, for how you, by faith, persevered through trials and sufferings, always doing what is pleasing to the Father. Oh, our salvation hangs on that. So thank you for those in this room and those joining us online Father would you now work in their hearts in such a way that brings us to that place today especially as we come to these tables just this clear confession in our souls in our hearts there is no hope but Christ Therein lies our confidence. We take this cup, we take this bread therein, not in the elements, but in, but in Christ. Therein lies our hope and our confidence. Lord, make that true of every person in this room now by your grace. Thank you for this truth. Strengthen your people with it. Grow our church. Our thinking about doctrine so that our lives might be lived for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. I want to ask our elders to now come and prepare the tables. As they are coming, let me remind you, um, we ask you to come forward. Deacons will dismiss you row by row as you come forward. Our elders will say to you, this is his body and this is his blood. They say that to direct your attention to Christ. There's nothing superstitious happening up here. Right? They're, just, they're just calling your hearts to Christ. This is his blood. This is his body. As you're coming or as you're seated, let's use this time to have communion with Christ, to, to, to reflect deeply up on the gospel, to reflect up on these truths, to let our hearts worship our Savior. Pastor Tim will come in a few moments, and he will lead us in this time of celebration together. If you're not a believer we ask that you refrain from this time. If you're a Christian, your hope is in Christ, come and celebrate this time with us. Deacons, you can now begin dismissing.
All week long, my heart has been pondering the word rest, the rest that we seek from God in so many ways. It was interesting to my own heart today as Jason was preaching, speaking about that rest that we have in God alone. The words of Psalm 62 came to my mind as David looked forward to the salvation that we have in Christ, and he says, on God rests my salvation. There's always been something about that phrase that has struck me in such a comforting way that all that I am and all that I hope for does not rest on my merit, but rests on the finished work of an eternal God with an eternal sacrifice in Christ. That should cause our hearts to rejoice, as Pastor Jason has spoken about. It ought to cause our hearts to have confidence so I trust as we come to the table today, particularly in light of all we've seen today, that we recognize that it is Christ and Christ alone. The Apostle Paul, as he was teaching the observance of the table, would say this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me and the great enduring truth as he concludes this for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's pray Father, we are always sobered at the reality of the cross. We always greatly moved as we think of the sufferings of Christ. And yet in those things, we deeply rejoice because Christ is our hope. The work has been accomplished. The sinless has become sin that the sinner might become righteous in him. Lord, what glorious, wonderful truths those are. And I pray, Lord, that they would grip our hearts, that they would guide our hearts, that on those truths our souls may rest. In his name, amen.
Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 